Amen. What a tremendous time of worship through song. Now let us feast and worship through the word. You can turn in your Bible's church to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is where we find ourselves. We made our way to the New Testament for the first time uh, in our preaching series of walking through the Bible last week, uh, but our course, we've made it to the New Testament well into the New Testament now in our reading guide, reading through the Bible chronologically for this calendar year. And uh, we have found ourselves in Mark 13. Of course, last week we were in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, looking there. Now we find ourselves here in the 13th chapter of Mark. And if you want to fall down a rabbit hole of epic proportions both in the amount of material available and the amount of time wasted, then do as I did this past week. And do the most simple of Google searches on end times prophecy. Prayerfully, you will not be swayed by the endless drivel, but rather move to gag as I was. All right. So, and I say all of that very, uh, very literally. Um, so, with that being said, here are some of the predictable headlines which I came across uh, when it came to that search. End Times Prophecy, update number nine. All right, yeah. So, End Times Prophecies, Jerusalem Dateline. End Times Prophecies are happening right now in America. Did Pope Francis activate End Times Prophecy? So, Harold Camping was provided, uh, has provided as many as 12 different predictions of the end times based on his interpretations of biblical numerology. In 1992, he published a book ominously titled, 1994, question mark, which predicted the end of the world. His most high-profile prediction was for May 21st, 2011. A date that he calculated to be exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. When that date passed without incident, he declared his math to be off and pushed back the end of the world to October 21st, 2011. Of course, obviously, which has came and passed. In the mid-1800s, a man named William Miller claimed Jesus would return on March 21st, 1844. It didn't happen. The date came and went with no sign of Jesus. Miller determined that his calculations were also off and claimed a divine delay was part of God's plan. He eventually pushed the date to October 1844, which again proved wrong. So if you came here this morning hoping I could point you to 10 signs as to why Maybe even the most recent of Friday's attack on Israel and the subsequent war that seems to be looming are signs of Jesus' return. You're going to be disappointed. This morning, I want all of us to be compelled to be awake when it comes to pursuing Christ-likeness and completely committed to showing one another love and respect no matter what eschatological view you hold. What happens when we do this is that rather than becoming obsessed with eschatology as far too many are prone to do, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is meant 
to be the point of eschatology. So when we, when we hold ourselves to pursuing Christ's likeness wholly and completely, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is meant to be the point of eschatology. So rather than focusing on, well, what's it going to look like? When's it going to be? How's it going to look? What is, what is going to happen? What are the signs? We focus on Jesus, which is the whole point. Christ is the one who is to be glorified, not which camp of end times you are in. So with that being said, I want to encourage you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning as we read our text, which is, comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning, I pray that truly, Lord, you would help us, as I prayed earlier, to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. Help us to not be distracted by the endless drivel of myths and heresies and theories, but God, help us to stay awake by being squarely focused on you, Jesus. And may that inform how we respond and live and look to your second coming. What your enduring word says of such. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, the context of this morning's passage goes back to the end of chapter 12. And, and there, Jesus points to the self-sacrificial giving of a poor widow as a model for the type of self-sacrificial giving he expects of his disciples. And it's that example that Jesus points to that then leads him to say what's next. So this conversation happens at the temple where, of course, this widow had come to give her tithe. The disciples then marvel at the beauty and majesty of the architecture of the temple. And they tell Jesus, look at these stones and how beautiful this is. To which Jesus replies in verse 2 of chapter 13, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus tells them simply that this temple and these stones, they're, going, they're, they're coming down. They're going to be destroyed. So as they sit down on the Mount of Olives directly across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus for more information about this. See, their, their mindset is this, this, he certainly must be talking about 
the end times. And so they want to know, they want to know more about this destruction of what they just marveled at as beautiful. They wanted to know when this was going to happen and the signs that it was going to be accomplished. So Jesus begins to explain to them signs and timing of this temple destruction, giving what is famously called his Olivet Discourse. Now, this first portion of his Olivet Discourse is dedicated to talking about the very thing which Peter, James, John, and Andrew have asked about, which is the destruction of the temple, which of course would go on to happen at the hands of the Romans much later after this discussion with Jesus. But see, James, Peter, John, and Andrew, in their mindset, they're thinking like simultaneous here. Destruction of the temple, end times. And what Jesus goes on to describe is that that's, that's different. So what Jesus said would happen, happened. So if you're not carefully reading, you can lump all of this chapter together and you can begin to picture things the way that Peter, James, John, and Andrew Picture them as like, oh, th this is all together. It must be the same thing, simultaneous. And you can be confused. However, once we get to verse 24, Jesus makes a distinction in the timing of these things, showing us that there is a separation in what he's described to these disciples as the destruction of the temple and the return of the Son of Man. And so there he gives us two different descriptions there of headings of what's happening here. We have the destruction of the temple and the return of the Son of Man. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew's mindset, this must be simultaneous. What Jesus goes on to describe is that there's different things that are going to happen between these two. So we go to our first verse of our text for today. Let's read that again. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. So here we're talking about not the destruction of the temple, which they began to ask about and goes back to verse 3. Here we're talking about the return of the Son of Man. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so that should bring many questions to mind. What we just read there. We know Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father. So how could he not know the date of his own return? Jesus is speaking here, of course, in and of his human nature. Just as he was fully God, he was also fully human. And we have many points throughout the Gospels where we see the human nature of Christ on full display. This is where we see in Philippians that in the incarnation of Jesus, he emptied himself, right, by taking the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men. So what we see throughout Scripture is that Jesus being found in human flesh means he was born, got hungry, thirsty, tired. Very, very human experiences there. Hopefully, for all of us, we were born and have been hungry, thirsty, or tired at some point, right? So we can relate with those, right? He had human emotions. He cried and experienced sorrow. Now comes perhaps the more shocking part of his humanity, and that's the part that's maybe on display, or not maybe on display, but that is on display here and may be a little perplexing to us. And that is that he had a human mind, also, Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. That's what we're seeing here. Meaning that this, that his one, 
that his one person possesses both a divine mind, which is infinite, and a human mind, about which can be said that he did not know things. Scripture affirms that as God, Jesus knows all things. Let that be clear. As God, Jesus knows all things. And as a man, we see that he grew in stature before the Father. So the other question that we should have is, what is this day and this hour that Jesus is talking about here? Again, we go back just a few verses to verse 24. So this is where he begins to make this distinction between the destruction of the temple and what comes after. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this is where we see, again, there's a separation of time. In those days, after that tribulation, Jesus' immediate answer to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew regarding the destruction of the temple. Now, he's pointing ahead to the coming of the Son of Man to gather his elect. And of that coming, Jesus says that no one knows, only the Father. Well, what do we take away from this? The major idea, which is staring us straight in the face here, of verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun above. Concerning that day and that hour that he just described, verse 24 through 27. What is the, the key, the core tenet, the idea that's happening here? That Christ's return is certain and nothing stands in his way. So Christ's perfect life, because I want us to understand, I want us to really grasp that point of the nothing stands in his way part. Because this is what too often confuses people, trips us, trips us up, and, and makes us think uh, different things. Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection, ascension, and consequential out, pouring out of his spirit on his church present his fully completed work here on earth. Which means the next major movement and the arc of salvation history is what? Christ's second coming. We do not nervously cling to a list of conditions that need to be checked off. We don't anxiously watch headlines from the world news or fearfully prepare for events outside of the control of Christ. This is the next thing. That Christ's return is certain. Nothing stands in his way. So he's not waiting for certain things to happen. Like, oh, okay, I can go now. That only the Father knows. Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection, ascension, and consequential pouring out of his spirit, that represent a fully completed work of his time here on earth. And therefore, there is nothing that stands in the way of his return. Church, if we do that, if we say, oh, well, this has to happen and, and then Christ will return. Christ can't return until X, Y, and Z are accomplished. We put conditions and unnecessary restlessness on the second coming that simply isn't in the scriptures. In reality, what it does is it places all the authority and control on man rather than Christ. When our focus is properly on Christ and his word, then we place the glory of the second coming where it is deserved. 
not on fearful headlines and lists of conditions, but on Christ. So, now we need to ask, well, how are we supposed to live in light of this certainty? Because it's certain, nothing stands in its way. So, how do we live in light of that fact? Well, Jesus goes on to explain. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So if, if we needed any further confirmation that there's only one who knows and that no one outside of him knows, we need it repeated to ourselves again, you do not know when the time will come. So in other words, we don't need to be concerned about that. What do we need to be concerned with? Being on guard and keeping awake. We know why we are to be on guard. How do we know that? For, is that word right there? For, you do not know. Be on guard and keep awake. For, so because. This is why. Like you don't know when the Father's coming. So don't be concerned about that. All you need to be concerned about is to be on guard and keep awake. Therefore, every day is to be lived and looked as the day. Since nothing stands between Christ and his return other than the will of the Father, we have been living in the last days since his ascension. So when people ask me if I think we're living in the last days, my answer sometimes surprises them when I say, we are and have been. We as the church have been living in the last days, experiencing the tribulation of this broken and sinful world ever since the ascension of Christ and the founding of his church. And this is what it means to say that the end is near. We see all over the New Testament. And this is why Jesus tells his followers to be on guard and to keep awake. So how do we do that? What does it look like to be on guard and to keep awake anxiously, hopefully, not fearfully or tremblingly, but that anxiously awaiting? What does that look like to be on guard and to keep awake? That's what we should be asking. What does that look like? How can we be on guard and keep awake? Well, primarily by clinging to his enduring word. Well, where do we get that? Well, that's the very context in which Jesus is saying all this. Just back up a few verses to verse 28. He gives this lesson of a fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. What are these things? This tribulation, right? So truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I... How can we be on guard? How can we keep awake? By clinging to this enduring word that never passes away. If you want to be on guard and keep awake for the return of Christ, then cling to the enduring word of truth. Don't cling to the words of those who claim to have wise words of the end times. 
Don't cling to the next word coming out of Jerusalem. Cling to God's self-revelatory, life-giving word, which gives us an ever-increasing knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. If you're looking for any other word, if you are looking for any other word for the end times, you will find that you are putting yourself in a state of being inattentive and asleep rather than on guard and awake. What does this look like? What does it look like then to, to cling to the word? Well, Jesus gives us a little parable to help us understand the consequences of not heeding his words. We continue reading, pick back up in verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What we have to determine here is pretty straightforward. So who is the master and who are the servants? Well, given the context, it's easy to see that the master is Christ. We are the servants. So then, the question which we must ask is again, how? How can we be on guard and keep awake? We can be on guard and keep awake by doing our work by clinging to the enduring word and by doing our work, which is explained for us in the enduring word. Okay, well, that sounds simple enough because you might be saying to yourself like, oh, okay, geez, great, thanks. Like, that really clears things up for you. Do your work, all right, right? So, but now the question we need to ask is what work has the master given us? If this is what's essential, we cling to the word, we do our work, and if we need to know what that work is so that when the master comes, we don't find ourselves inattentive and asleep, what work has the master given us? Answering this question from a biblical perspective will help us clarify the waters which have been made murky by all the false prophets, false preachers, religions of this world, etc. Answering this question will keep us from trying to take control being restless, being fearful, impatient, unproductive, and unfruitful for the kingdom. So what work has the master given us? To make disciples. In fact, Jesus begins to detail this work back in verse 10, where he says, in chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, right? That's what he's saying in the midst of answering about these birth pains, which are going to come as part of this tribulation and all these things that are going to be happening, wars, rumors of wars, all these famous verses that we hear just kind of just thrown in, melded in with all this talk of end times. Now, after reading this verse, you might think to yourself, aha, pastor, you said there was no list of conditions, but here's one. Now, a simple, straightforward reading of this text can make it seem like a box that needs to be checked in order to unlock Christ's return. The problem is that's not the context 
yet. Here he's speaking of the destruction of the temple and the completion of ushering in a new age through the temple of his church. The sentence structure here points us to the truth that the completion of all this, the destruction of the temple, the consummation of the church, the return of the Son of Man, all of it is part of God's continuing providential plan. So before all of God's providential working of all things is completed, what will happen? The good news will be proclaimed panta ta ethne, to all nations. Thus we have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. There's the doing our work, making disciples, right? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's clinging to the enduring word. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16, Mark's version of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Acts 1.8, Luke's version. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the work of the church. This is what it means to be a part of the Father's works. This is what it looks like. The context of this morning passage, again, goes back to the end of chapter 12. So what else, what other work has the Master given us? What other work has He assigned to His followers to do in light of being ready to staying on guard to keeping awake he's building for himself a temple not made with stone but a temple made of every tribe tongue nation and language that we would know his gospel and proclaim the joy of his glory to the whole of the earth if we aren't focused on following this mission if we aren't focused on proclaiming this gospel, if we aren't focused on being a church that is doing the work of the Father, then what are we? If we aren't focused on this mission, then we aren't being about the master's work and we find ourselves inattentive and asleep. So stay awake, church. What other work has the master given us? To grow in grace and knowledge. We get this, uh, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. If you go down to verse 18, of course this is where this verse is popular, this growing in grace and knowledge. It's the end of Peter's second letter here. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You might be saying to yourself, well, great, but what does that have to do with eschatology, end times? Like, What does that have to do with what we're seeing here is what is the Father's work? Well, back up a little bit. And you'll see that the context of what Peter is saying here is of the day that the Lord will come. And he's saying, since all the, if you go back to verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt. So this is the context. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Growing in grace and knowledge. So this is part of the work that the Father has given. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we go on to see in Ephesians 4.15, how we see the same idea. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. We see this in Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is to be our work? We're to grow in Christ's likeness, grow in our understanding of his word, grow in our application of his word. And so as we do so, the spirit works in that to sanctify us, to prepare us for this very thing that we might be found not fearful, not uh, timid, but that we would be found living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day. With Christ's likeness as our goal, we look toward his second coming, not out of fearful distraction. We look toward his second coming, not just waiting for the next news headline. We look toward his second coming with an eager, hope-filled expectation that when he comes for his bride, he will complete the work of the Spirit by making us completely new. So stay awake, church. If you're not pursuing Christ's likeness, you're finding yourself inattentive and asleep. Finally, what other work has the master given us? How do we grow in grace and knowledge? What does that look like? Well, we must be relentlessly vigilant. For that, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 12. So this, of course, is within the context of the more famous verse from chapter 12 of being, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's continued, Paul's continuing to expound on what that looks like to present your body as a living sacrifice. Talking about the grace given to me, I say everyone ought to think Ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. If you go to verse 6 of chapter 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What does it look like to be the church that is anxiously awaiting and seeking to be about the Father's work? 
This is what it looks like. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it looks like to be relentlessly vigilant in pursuing Christ's likeness. This is what it looks like. To be about the Father's work. What work has he given us? To be his church. To be his bride. Seeking to rightly divide and apply the word of truth. We must make this consume our lives. Guarding one another. Bearing with one another. We cannot drop our guard. This is what it means to look to Christ's return. Not to distract ourselves with silly controversies or frivolous worries, but to be about the master's work. I'll point you back again to our text for this morning. To the final verse there, again, verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is what it means to be awake, church. Lest the master return, and we find ourselves arguing what version of eschatology we follow. Lest the master return and we find ourselves just anxiously fearful about the news that we heard the other day. Anxiously fearful about all these things that are being said about when and how and what, rather than doing our work, making disciples, growing in grace and knowledge, and being relentlessly vigilant to be the church. And if we're not doing that, then we are finding ourselves inactive and asleep rather than on guard and awake. So the challenge for all of us is, where are you this morning? Are you finding yourself inactive and asleep? Are you finding yourself overwhelmingly concerned with what, what, what vein of eschatology do I follow and, and where do I want to plant my flag and set my camp or, or are you overly concerned with the news or, or what is it? Or are you doing the master's work? And of course then the follow-up question to that is what, what changes need to be made to make sure that you are on guard and awake? Because this is not an exhaustive list. I tried to make this just a, a summation. I only listed three things here. But we, we have an entire book of the work that we're called to do and how we're called to live and apply and be. And so that's why we, we gather in small groups to discuss God's Word. That's why everything we do here is focused on the enduring Word. Lest we find ourselves clinging to some other Word. So the challenge here this morning, if you found yourself, if you are in Christ, is to do a mirror check. Like, like, am I awake? 
Or have I been lulling myself to sleep by worrying about silly controversies and myths? And maybe, maybe you do find yourself awake, but, but are you on guard? Like, are you, are you awake and kind of aware of some of these things? But are you being vigilant, relentlessly vigilant in the application of those things? Of course, the other challenge here is to go back to point one. If you don't find yourself in Christ, you need to learn his return is certain. And with him, he brings both mercy and judgment. Only those found in him will be on the receiving end of the mercy. And so he is drawing you to himself. He has plainly displayed himself that you might see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, repent of sin, turn to him, and therefore no longer have to live life anxiously worried about what is going to happen at the end of all things, but rather your concern merely becomes pursuing Christ's likeness. Respond to that drawing. Respond to the gospel. Repent of sin and follow him because his return is certain and nothing stands in his way. So be on guard and stay awake, church. Let's pray. God, we come before you now asking that you would give us an overwhelming peace which surpasses all understanding which is ours in Christ Jesus concerning the end times. Give us peace not in how well we grasp these things, but give us peace in how well we grasp the gospel. Give us peace according to your enduring word, which will not pass away. Help us, Lord, to have a rock-solid confidence as your church that you are in control of all things at all times. Therefore, we have need not be afraid, but we simply seek to be on guard and stay awake. So, oh Lord, help us to stay awake. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that you would pierce their hearts with the truth of your word. Draw them to yourself. Enlighten them. Awaken them to the reality of our sinfulness Move them to repentance that they may live a life at peace, glorifying you. I pray that you would help all of us respond accordingly now. Help us respond to how you've revealed yourself in your word with obedience. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.